The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 11th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The biggest threat that Vladimir Putin poses is not that he'll hack Debbie Wasserman Schultz's Snapchat to reveal that she was kind of annoyed by Bernie Sanders at some point. And it's not that he'll run circles around a gullible President Trump. Not that he wouldn't, not that he's not, he just won't be president. And it's not that scientists are actually finding a way to merge him with that horse he's always riding on so that he actually becomes a centaur one day. No, the threat isn't a threat. It's actually a reality. It's all the stuff he's really doing that we're not paying attention to. We are so anxious. We're so worried about what could happen. Then what about the stuff that is happening? Like in Ukraine, the war is heating up. Putin has claimed an attack on Russian troops. So now he's saying that special countermeasures are being planned in Moscow. And there are reports of a large-scale military buildup around Crimea. A spokesman for Ukraine's foreign ministry wrote on Twitter, Putin wants more war. Russia escalates, desperately looking for casus belli against Ukraine, tests West's reaction. Meanwhile, there is another war in Europe that is heating up, long-simmering. The Nagorno-Karabakh region is inside Azerbaijan, but it is not filled with Azerbaijanis. It's filled with Armenians, and the Armenians have essentially controlled it since the end of an armed conflict that killed 30,000 two decades ago. By the way, thank me, I didn't say the word enclave in that sentence. All right, so it's really complicated. Well, it's complicated in that Games of Thrones way of a bunch of different actors with a bunch of different motivations. So Russia and Turkey are getting along again now. Turkey, of course, hates Armenia. Azerbaijan bonds with Turkey over hatred of Armenia, yet those two countries have problems. Russia is now looking for this ongoing conflict to be settled and to Russia. Settling a conflict often means crushing resistance. So I know it's obscure. How obscure? Well, sometimes in foreign policy circles, they talk about the countries Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and Moldova, and they call them the Guam countries. So yeah, they've named an obscure set of countries after an even more obscure American territory to try to make it less obscure. Good luck with that. In fact, the BBC, which pronounces everything correctly, acknowledges the obscurity of the conflict. This is a conflict in a a faraway place for most people in a territory with an almost unpronounceable name. Does it matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons. Limiting bloodshed, securing natural resources, penning in Putin. But it matters to me because of this. There are two people running for president of the United States. I do not think either person will be able to quote unquote solve this crisis. But don't you think we're better off electing the person who has heard of the crisis and whose instinct isn't to let them fight it out and sell condos to whoever wins? I know who agrees with me. Mike Murphy, I will be talking to the Republican political consultant on today's show. And after that, I will spiel about Olympic medals, silver or bronze, which is better. But now the Republican guru turned anti-Trump activist. In fact, Mike Murphy is the second such man who fits that description that we've had on this week. He has more jingles than a Christmas elf. He has a new podcast where he shows off his jingles and, like Commissioner Gordon, sends up the bat signal when the orange menace threatens Gotham. Here's my talk with Mike Murphy.
Mike Murphy is a famous Republican political consultant. He gave advice to John McCain and John Engler and Tommy Thompson, Christine Todd Whitman, Lamar Alexander, Schwarzenegger. He was the man behind Jeb Bush's latest run. Uh, Failed, though principled, I would say. Perhaps the two are related. Now, Mike Murphy has an excellent, especially if you like jingles, an excellent podcast called Radio Free GOP. Yes, he leans pretty heavily on the jingle. Hello, Mike. How are you? I am good. I should probably sing this because it is true. I'm a jingle addict and it's good to be here today. Jingles have a way of implanting themselves in the mind, love them or hate them. We wind up remembering them and I think we wind up loving them. Yeah. You know, songwriters call the catchy part you sing the hook of the song because it kind of hooks your mind and pulls you in. And with Radio Free GOP, the the big idea was to kind of make it a resistance radio station, but do the old big boss radio vibe with the big full sing jingles that you don't hear much anymore. So we actually found the guys at jams down in dallas who historically had been the kings of that style and oh. they they jumped at it and they they way over delivered for our meager budget and they were wonderful to work with but they most of the jingles are original radio jingle music with new lyrics but they're all the classic old big boss radio jingles from the 60s and 70s that people have heard for a long time all across the nation let's put crazy on the run I'm going way off on a jingle tangent, but I'm really interested. (laughs) Have you ever used jingles? I mean, that's uh, politics of a bygone era, the songs I like, Ike, but have they they been successful uh, in planting a candidate in people's brains in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, I think they, I mean, they're they're not common now, which makes them kind of interesting. Generally in politics, they're either quite good or really, really bad. A full sing jingle, I'm trying to think, oh yeah, we did one, a Supreme Court race in Michigan, Maura Corrigan, and the Supreme Court races are tough because, you know, people don't remember the name and you don't have much advertising money, you have kind of one shot, so we got out the, you know, the the Corrigan, Corrigan, again, again, you know, the old melody, and that was our bullet, and she won. So, (laughs) you know, they're they're an old advertising thing because when done well, they do work. Yeah, it's hard to get too subtle, though, on a jingle or a Supreme Court case. You know, her appeals won't be overturned. Yeah, the (laughs) problem with political jingles is they try to put too much copy in. He's a really great guy, and he cares about jobs and the economy. He's going to make America great again. Mm Da-da. And, you know, simple is good and and a good hook, a catchy little melody there. Well, this brings us to the Trump phenomenon, the orange menace, as you call him, among other things that you call him. You know, it probably is the case that you have got, you mostly work with people running for office who have so much they want to say and so many messages that they want to get across. And you probably tell them, you know, hit two or three points, simplify. They go into public service because they have this whole agenda of getting things done. It seems like Trump is actually the, the opposite. He's got two or three slogans and he doesn't have any depth behind that. Yeah, the worst thing that will happen to Trump will be the day the campaign ends because then the ego bubble goes away, the cheering crowd, the plane, the one-liners on cable television. And either if he loses, as I'm quite confident he will, he'll go back to you know putting his name on condos. If he wins, it'll be even worse for him because then he'll have to face the daunting Leviathan of the government and actually trying to manage it with policy, which is another planet to him. He's about a eighth of an inch thick on every issue, so he'll be overwhelmed. He, he wants the show of this, the moment, the adulation, not the work. 
I always thought that people say, oh, he doesn't want to win. My thought was that he definitely wanted to run and he saw that good things could happen for his business, his brand and his ego. If he ran, if he did well, I think he's a little bit like the dog that caught the fire engine. But I really just think he he very much wants to lead in the polls and wants to, uh, in his mind, win arguments. But I don't see him as being so motivated to win the presidency. And I definitely don't see him being motivated to govern. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, who knows what goes inside that crazy head, but my gut is the same that he thought, Hey, I can get into this, make a little noise and get out and, you know, sell some more condos in Malaysia and cut to the thing caught on, at least in the Republican primary. So now he's, he's kind of paying, he's in kind of a karmic jail of his own creation, particularly lately, because he's gone from being the biggest winner to the biggest loser. Now, you know, all the chatter in the race, you know, he's watching all of it is about bad polling numbers, Republicans in panic, Trump screwing up, and it must be driving him crazy, let alone any attraction to actually do government if he were to win. So we're speaking at a time where few people will be paying attention to the election just because it's up against Olympics and it's mid-August. If he saw Somehow shows an ability that he hasn't shown, which is to stay on message, not get out of his own way. How close do you think, just by being a normal garden variety disciplined candidate, how close can he get the polls? Well, normally in a presidential election, generically, because of the demography of America, the fact that in this election, approximately 30% of the vote will be minority and Republicans just are not competitive there. We have a structural problem of maybe in a year where the Democrats are kind of unpopular like this year, maybe minus three, which we'd have to make up with a good candidate, which we could do. The problem with Trump is it's like he was built in a lab to make all the problems we have worse. Minorities hate him more than our generic number. College-educated white women who in many ways are the fulcrum of the election dislike him far more. I mean, in, in this latest polling, which in the new episode of Radio Free GOP, I kind of walked through the crosstabs. For the first time in my memory, we've got a poll after the conventions where Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee, is carrying college-educated white people. That is the staple Republican vote. So... You know, if Trump weren't crazy, if he were a Jeb Bush or even a Kasich, he'd probably be ahead a little, you know, four or five points. If he were just a generic bad Republican bag of cement, he'd be down two or three within striking distance. But he's managed to make that down eight or nine. So, Jeb, your your man made the formulation or, you know, put forth the idea that I think he said something along the lines of you have to lose the primary to win the general. But the idea was those two things are at odds with each other. And I just want to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, first of all, how true is it? And second of all, is it, is it more true for Republicans than it is for Democrats? Yeah, well, demographically, because of the changes in the country, the general election looks more and more like a big Democratic primary than it does a Republican primary. So the problem we've got is the incentives in our primary are the opposite of the incentives you need to win the general election. So we get into this kind of feedback loop where I'm always hearing about, oh, we ran a really smart primary. And I'm like, well, if a really smart primary means saying things that make it impossible to ever be elected president of the United States and essentially wasting everybody's time and a billion dollars of campaign, I'm not sure how smart that is. The smart thing to do is find a way to win a Republican primary where you're still viable in general election. And that's what we tried to do with Jeb. I mean, we, we knew it was more of a long shot than people gave us credit. We knew the primary voters were looking for grievance, and we knew Jeb Bush was not to his credit a grievance candidate. You know, the market just wasn't there for what we were selling. But I got to tell you, we sleep pretty well at night. The kind of conservatism Jeb 
you know, ran on and practiced in Florida would have won the general election. And, you know, we could make some policy changes in the country that we conservatives think would be great. So the odd thing to me about what you said about appealing to a Republican primary and then that disqualifying you from a general election, I wonder why it's that way. You're right. Obviously, in the presidential election, a slightly different demographic comes out. It looks more like America as a whole. But look at how great Republicans have done in governorships and the Senate. And since Obama's been president, they've won 900 seats in the state legislature. So that pile of evidence shows, tells me that there's something about Republicans that people want to vote for. And yet, you know, in the in the primary, it's this process of sl- of s- the Republicans slitting their own throats to some extent. Yeah, the incentives are all screwed up. You're totally right that at the state and local level, we've had a lot of success, and we're a good right of center conservative governing party. We've got Republican governors who like to get stuff done with our principles in government. Our federal party, the guys in the House for the most part, though Ryan is a great exception, and I think key to our kind of our reforming conservatism tended to have been resentment guys. Oh, everybody's corrupt. Oh, everybody's a crook. Stop it, block it, shut the government down. And so that national brand we have is the elders from Footloose who are against everything really kind of catches up with us in a general election, but it resonates in the primary. And and that's the problem. The primary has been kind of this purity club that has defined conservatism as something it's not, you know, not at least when I came up in the days of Reagan and we're living with the results. So we need a massive reform of what conservatism means. And that's the one good news, I guess, out of the rubble that may await us on November uh, on election day. My analogy is always, I'm going to feel like the guy who ran a Toyota motor plant in 1946. There's a pile of rubble, rubble where the factory was, but at least I get to build a new great factory. Okay, so let's talk about where the Republican Party goes to hear from here. The premises that Trump loses. Some of this will depend on how much he loses by. So what about all those down ballot candidates? You were talking about this on the show the other day. Well, there are two theories on this. The historical theory is when you do bad at the top of the ticket, you do bad everywhere. But a theory that's going around that I subscribe to as, a, as an idea that could be true, and we're going to have to find out, is that it's also no secret that the Republican Party leadership is mostly very uncomfortable with Trump. So will swing voters say, you know, I kind of get it. Trump was like a, a lab accident that spilled over. They're not in lock. My local Republican senator, maybe I'll split my ticket and get a, get the guy kind of like on the Republican side in the Senate, not punish that guy for Trump and, you know, presidentially vote Hillary because I'm scared of Trump, even though I don't love her. You know, if eight or nine percent of the voters do that, we can hold the Senate. The big question is some of these Senate guys are in states that compound the challenge by being generically very Democratic. You've yeah. got... Wisconsin, Illinois. I think Toomey's probably doing the best in, in right. IOT up in New Hampshire. In the House, you know, redistricting keeps it pretty safe for us, just like in the old days it would keep it safe for the Dems. But I still think we're going to lose net seats. So that makes it tougher on Speaker Ryan because the guys who lose are not going to be some of his more difficult members in seats that, again, a bag of cement could win. So, you know, the margin could, we could be down to a 15, 14 point edge in the House, but 
the power of the Freedom Caucus and some of those to hassle him and be a problem could could grow a bit because the guys will lose will be the reasonable guys on a swing seat who understand what a swing voter is and understand the party's branding issues. How much soul searching does the Republican Party do afterwards? Or do they say this guy was an outlier? This guy was a black swan. It doesn't really say anything about us having to rethink our general philosophies. Well, Hillary is so generically vulnerable that the nomination in four years will instantly have value and people will therefore compete for it. <clears throat> but there's no kind of collective intelligence that will say, now time for thoughtful reflection. You have the same old war we have now between what I call the mathematicians and the priests. You know, mathematicians are guys like me who say, hey, with 30% of the minority vote not voting for us and growing, we can't be the baseball team that wins games by only batting in five innings. It's mathematically becoming impossible. Then you have the priests who say, just had faith, you rhino idiot. You know, if we only really, really concentrate and are really, really pure in our message, we have a lot more people come out to vote who never vote, which is mathematically untrue but you know <clears throat> i'm sounding like a mathematician again so that war will continue so it'll be warlords of different flavors competing for 2020 we'll have a little bit of a comeback in in 2018 because in off-year elections fewer people vote and the electorate's more republican and we do pretty well whether trump will still have a big shadow over the party or not Losers tend to be buried quickly. I mean, who in the Democratic Party gave a damn about Mike Dukakis six months after he lost in 88? So Trump's sins will be bigger, so his stench will remain longer. But I, I don't think it'll be cataclysmic. The bigger deal will be what we articulate as a new form of conservatism, a reform, con a modern conservatism that appeals to a larger electorate than the one we have now. But I have read a lot, and this is mostly in liberal media, like, say, Slate. You know, the Republicans have themselves to blame. They countenance the casual racism. A lot of dog whistle politics went on for too long. And this is the inevitable consequence of that. You know, is that an area of soul searching, the, the racism? Yeah, well, no, I look, if we learn no lesson from that, I mean, I hope that two things that are rejected in this campaign are the racial taint on Trump and the class warfare a know-nothingism of a Bernie Sanders and in a bad day Elizabeth Warren. So I think there's plenty of lowest common non or dog whistling that we should get rid of in our politics. And I'm hoping that's a lesson we take away from this because, you know, this is not a happy election where people are saying, God, we've got the best of America running. We have to take Hillary's mediocrity and ethical blind spot over Trump's insanity and racism. People are going to want more out of politics and we'll see if they get it. Mike Murphy, a font of wisdom and jingles. Radio Free GOP is the podcast. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. It was great to chat. He used to have a big career, but now he's had enough. Podcasting's like therapy. He shrinks as it's raised up. Radio Free GOP. And now the spiel. Go for the gold. But if you don't get the gold, go for the bronze. This seems to be the lesson. Studies show the bronze medalists are happier. Most is, well, because of why you think that would be, because gold wins and silver ruse not winning the gold. Bronze is still a prize. It's better than just a participation trophy, but with none of the heartbreak of silver. Listen to U.S. swimmer Nathan Adrian, who had just lost to not one but two other swimmers, but as he looked at it, he didn't lose. He won the bronze. What happened in this race? Uh, but I didn't go the fastest time in the pool. <laughs> um, it actually felt pretty good, to be honest. Uh, not my fastest time of the season. Uh, but certainly think, 
you know, I, I can't be upset with that. <laughs> I just came with a, with a bronze medal. Nathan Adrian seems like a generally upbeat guy, but many bronze medalists are. There is another reason why bronze medalists seem happier. In many cases, they just came off a win. Not in a sport like swimming or in track, but in sports with brackets. A lot of times, there's a gold medal game where two teams face each other. The winner gets the gold, the loser gets the silver. I'll say that again, the loser gets the silver. Then in the bronze medal game, it's the winner who gets the bronze. You get a bronze, you're a winner. And in some sports, there is no bronze medal match, like boxing or a lot of the combat sports. If you're in the semis, if you're just in the semis, you're guaranteed a bronze. Tough sport. It would be inhumane to continue on pursuing your sport. Yes, boxing is pretty tough. So for all these reasons, it just seems kind of natural that bronze medalists are happier. And when I said studies show this, a study does indeed show this. However, upon investigation, I found out that is a flimsy, flimsy study. So these researchers, this is how they figured out that bronze medalists are happier. They, quote, evaluated photographs of athletes on the victory podium in the 1992 Olympics. They also studied post-competition audio interviews. And that's how they determined that bronze medal winners were happier. Now, for the best research, what you'd want is a longitudinal study, many years, peer-reviewed, double-blind. That's the gold standard. Or you could get access to interviews done by other researchers. Though, if you did get access to that, I'm sure you'd be kicking yourself that you didn't do the interviews yourself. Sort of the silver standard of research. These guys looked at some pictures and decided who seemed happier. Yeah, sure, I guess we'll publish you. It'll be in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Sure, it's not the annual review of psychology, and it's not the psychological bulletin. It's sort of a tertiary journal, the bronze medal of journals for the bronze medal of studies. Woohoo! You still get to be positively cited by Shankar Vedantam on NPR. I've noticed a pattern the last few nights watching the Olympics, Steve, which is that the bronze medal winners invariably seem to be happier than the silver medal winners. Wait a minute. And you know you've made it in pop psychology as a study. When you get cited in a TED Talk, here's Rakesh Sarin. In Olympics, did you know that bronze medalists are happier than silver medalists? Actually, this TED Talk wasn't just reference. This was the title. This was the life lesson, the jumping off point for how to live your life. It was called, Why Are Bronze Medalists Happier Than Silver Medalists? It's because silver medalists regret missing the gold, while bronze medalists are happy to win any medal at all. Now, this guy's theory, this professor at UCLA, was happiness is reality minus expectations. And I buy that theory. And I kind of buy that silver medalists are sometimes happier, but I think the situation has to be exact. Let's say you're a favorite going into the Olympics, but then you lose. Well, if you're caught from behind at the last second by a fellow competitor, well, then you're a silver medalist and you're probably unhappy. You're probably saying, oh my God, I can't believe I just let it slip away. But if you're beaten by two people, that turns you into a bronze medalist, but you're probably not tearing yourself up inside. You're maybe disappointed with yourself, but probably the lesson you're telling yourself is, I really wasn't that good. And I think there's another big, big factor at play. How much you lose the gold by. If you are just pipped at the end, you might rue. You might stew. But what about when the first place finisher is so far ahead, but the silver medalist just beats the bronze medalist? I 
went and looked at past Olympics for a couple of examples. I studied rowing from the 2012 games, which I covered. So first, let's hear from a pair of rowers who just lost. They just lost by a hair. Team Great Britain's Hunter and Purchase, six-tenths of a second behind the winners, but a full three seconds ahead of the Kiwis in third. They lost, and they sound like silver medalists. Uh, it's kind of a roller coaster of emotions at the moment. Uh stereotypical sour silver medalists. But when I investigated rowers who were far out of first place, but just beat the bronze medalist, they seemed a lot happier. Let's take the men's coxless pair. Yeah, I know you have to have a certain amount of internal fortitude to be a man who of all sports chooses the sport of becoming part of a coxless pair. All right. In 2012, the gold went to New Zealand. They came in at 6.16. The silver went to the French at 6.21 point 11 and they beat the bronze medalists at 621.77 so they were fractions of a second ahead of the bronze but five full seconds out of gold and i looked at pictures and those frenchmen seemed really really happy they were beaming which given the fact that they're frenchmen is extra impressive now you might say all right it's looking at a photograph that's not proof but exactly how the original researchers who did the study, that's how they put together their results. I found that rower after rower who earned silver and were soundly beaten by gold, but just beat the bronze medalists were happy. Australia's Kate Hornsey and Sarah Tate, two and a half seconds behind the gold medalists, two thirds of a second in front of the bronze, happy women. There was a pair of Chinese silver medalists in double skulls in the same situation. They evinced the same glee. And then there were the men's eights and the women's eights. Both of those silver medalists were Canadians. Gleeful, gleeful Canadians. Here is Malcolm Howard at an event after the race. Getting a little bit better race in that repechage. And having Mike put together the brilliant race plan for that final and going out and racing like that, it's amazing. I mean, it's not just about the end goal, but it's about the story. And that's the best story I've ever had in rowing. Malcolm Howard declaring there is no shame in silver. We still beat bronze. And while that might not make its way into a neat little TED Talk, it is true. Hey, in today's metal prices, gold pronounced $1,300. Silver, just $20. But you know what? Bronze is eight cents, meaning silver is 250 times as valuable as bronze and also meaning all that glitters is not gold. And that's it for today's show. Fencing in the Olympics takes place on a pist, and Mary Wilson produces the gist. Steve Lichtai is Slate's executive producer. Some want the edits tighter. He wants them looser. Panoply panoply listen on the train in the car or in your showers with chief content officer andy bowers the gist that's 1-800-USA-GIST if you don't have your iPhone and there's something you missed. 1-800-USA-GIST. Charges may apply and it doesn't exist. Oomperoo, depperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.